Turn your Bibles to John chapter 16. As you turn there, I'm going to share with you an illustration because then you will be able to understand the message better. Or at least that's the theory. John chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 4. John chapter 16. And as you turn there, I'll tell you a little story. When Sarah and I uh, first got together, we lived here in New York for about four years, from 1999 to 2003. And then we moved to California. Unbeknownst to us, we were on a spiritual journey. It wasn't just a, a, a journey across the, the map. But we made it back to California, where I'm originally from. And um, Sarah kept asking me, what's, all, what's, what's fun to do? Where can we go? What, you, know, you always hear about California and all these great things. Where can we go? And what Sarah, I think, was having a hard time coming to grips with is that I'm a homebody. And I didn't know where all the fun places were to go. So Sarah took it upon herself. She, Instead of being disappointed, she accepted that challenge and decided, well, I'm going to show you, you Californian, how great California is. And one of the first places she discovered was off the coast of California where elephant seals migrate. It was amazing. There were these huge, giant seals. Like maybe you've seen seals at the zoo or something. Like These things were like a Volkswagen, um, and they were barking loudly, and they were all coming to this little cove to give birth, to mate, to increase their harem size because the males would have several uh, females gathered around them. And uh, every so often you would have these two bull elephant seals, and you could identify them by, by these snouts that they had. They look like small elephant trunks, and they'd get a little too close to one another, and they'd have to show their dominance, and they'd have to fight. It was amazing. You would stand really far away behind a protected bar up a little high, and you just watch. It was great. To this day, it's one of the, 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 the things we'll always go back and do. And when new people come when we're in California, it's one of the first things we take them to do. Now, in doing that, Sarah and I were kind of strapped for cash. Um, uh, not a lot has changed, but we were a little strapped for cash. And so it was as simple as possible. This was something free you could do. It was just paying for gas to get there. Um, but she wanted to surprise me. So she said, uh, take this blindfold and put it on your eyes. And I said, all right. And so she drove, and I sat in the passenger side. And then she drove in circles. Like if you've ever like for uh, if you've ever had a pinata, I don't know if you guys do that in New York, but if you ever have a pinata and you spin the kid around and then you give him the bat, which always seems logical, spin him around and then you get them all dizzy and they don't know where to swing. Um, sort of the same mentality. She didn't. She wanted to throw off my sense of direction. She totally did. Um, by the way, I've married a wonderful woman. This is the type of stuff she does for me. Um, so she gets my sense of direction all messed up and then she takes off because it was all one direction. She was just going to go north, but I needed to not know that. It was about an hour and a half long car ride though, and by the time I got there, I, I, my vision was a little better than it is now. I couldn't see. Like I took the blindfold off and everything was cloudy. I was like, my eyes could not adjust. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going blind. What did you do to me? Um, are you going to steal my kidneys? What is this? And so I'm like, I'm trying to get my eyes to focus and I just can't. And I can hear the seals and I see these big grayish black you know, blobs kind of hopping around and barking at each other. Um, but it took quite some time for my eyes to adjust to actually see what was in front of me. I could perceive that something great was happening. There's tons of people all around. Everybody was excited. But I couldn't see what was actually happening. If you asked me for details in that time, I wouldn't be able to share that with you. 
Now I can because I've been back several times and, and enjoy it. It's one of my favorite places in the world, uh, let alone in California. Um, but I, th I couldn't see. It took my eyes having to be adjusted, having them to get reacclimated to the light and the surroundings so that I could perceive what was actually happening in front of me. I share that with you today because there's a misconception about Jesus that we will come to know him logically. One plus one will equal two always. That we just need to be heard, to hear about Jesus. We'll say, oh yeah, Jesus, why didn't I think of that? And then all of a sudden we'll give our life to Jesus. Um, I, I don't want to discount an experience like that, but I'm here to give you the reality, sort of the behind the scenes of what's happening in that conversion. Christianity isn't just an affiliation, it's a conversion. You're being changed from one creature to another. You're being transformed from a dead person to, a, to someone who has come alive in Jesus. It's no small thing. It's not just something we check on a form. It is a life transformation. And it takes the Holy Spirit of God, the very power of God, the very essence of God, the third person of the Trinity, to make that happen in you, to show you Jesus. If you come to a place where you conclude, I must give my life to Jesus, I want you to know today that that has been a supernatural act of God in your life. That the Holy Spirit has come. I can't give you all of the details. I don't know exactly how it works. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. But I know this, that God has given you eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and minds to comprehend the goodness and the greatness and the necessity of Jesus. That Jesus just isn't an option. He's the only option. That Jesus isn't just a good idea. He's the only idea. Jesus isn't just one of the ways. He's the only way. That without him, oh my gosh, we are in trouble. We are all in, 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 we are all at risk to go to hell if we don't have him. But praise God, we do. We have Jesus, but it takes the Holy Spirit. And today's uh, theme in the Holy Ghost, the God You Never Knew sermon series, is that the Holy Spirit has come to show us Jesus. Let me give you a few misconceptions because I like to teach and preach not only what is right, but I like to identify some of the things that are wrong. Before we do that, let's read John chapter 16. I, I hope you guys had enough time to get there. I gave you as much time as possible. John 16 and 4 says, But I have said these things to you, now this is Jesus talking, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is getting ready to be sacrificed on the cross. He's having one last uh, evening with his disciples. He's traveled with these men for three plus years, day in, day out. If you've ever been around a group of men who have been together for more than a day, you know that they create their own funk. Um, they have their own smell. Jesus smelled these men, experienced uh, everything with these men, walked with these men, ate with these men for three and a half years. These are not just his underlings. These are not just his assistants. These are men whom he has called to himself to travel and journey with him every single day for three and a half years. And now it's coming to an end. Now is the time where Jesus is going to give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. So it's one last instruction. It's one last encouragement. It's one last reality to the disciples before he goes. 
He said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him uh, who sent me. And none of you asked, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and, will, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but cannot, you cannot bear them now. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Verse 14 is very important. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, your word is, is amazing. We're not here to change it. We're not here to fit it to our lifestyle. We want to be changed by it. Holy Spirit, we lay ourselves down before you that you may mold and shape us according to your word and purpose. And we give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. The Spirit of God, here called the Spirit of Truth. I'm a big proponent of the truth. I don't know about other folks, but I really don't like when Jesus is preached in theory. I don't like when Jesus is preached in emotion only. And I don't like when Jesus is preached in a way that is false. I'm not a big fan of false hope. False hope helps nobody. I don't want to just be inspired. You know, often you go to places like Walmart and different stores, and you'll find uh, the inspirational section. And that's where you'll find the Bible and different writings by Christian authors. Because it's perceived as just inspirational. It's so vague and vanilla. It's it, inspired, like just inspiration, that's it? Like you just need to be encouraged to just go and just get over this day? I don't need that. I need, I need, I need answers. I need truths that I can hang my hat on, that I can put my full weight against and know that that truth will be the same tomorrow as it is today. And so there are some misconceptions that we have to uh, get through so that we can you know, dismantle the misconceptions so we may rightly worship God through his Holy Spirit. And so some of the misconceptions about the Holy Spirit are very simple, and just simple reading through the Word clarifies so much. So much of false doctrine, theology, and teaching, or just bad teaching in general, can be easily, easily corrected by just simply reading your Bible. Any person can go have an idea, find a handful of scriptures to back them up. It's not that hard. There have been people who have done the most vile, foul things on this planet and feel justified because they've had a handful of scriptures in which to reference. But what they've done is they've taken them out of context, used them wrongly. They may be quoting them verbatim, but they're using them wrong. And so we're going to go back and we're going to make sure, because we're students of the Bible, we're going to make sure because we are disciples who aren't swayed by emotion. We're not swayed by, by fanciness or the person who's preaching to us. We go back to the word. We're like the Bereans. We hear Paul preach and then we decide, you know what, we're going back to the word to make sure that what this man or woman or group has taught is actually the truth. 
And so the first misconception about the Holy Spirit is that because something is new, God must be doing it. And often this, this scripture is quoted, Isaiah 43 and 19. Write that down, look back to it later, but we're going to be in that little area for just a moment. Isaiah 43 and 19 says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, you'll never see that last half. You'll always see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And the latter half of that scripture will always be like just chopped off as if it's irrelevant. But it makes all of the difference. The idea is behind this type of a teaching is, is that if I'm doing something as a leader in this church or as a group body, we're doing something that looks wacky, goofy, dangerous, weird, that makes you feel uncomfortable. Well, God's doing a new thing, you see. You don't understand or perceive because God's doing something new. And you might say, well, I don't see this in Scripture. Well, of course, because God's doing a new thing. I have my Scripture. Oh, okay. And then folks who, who are a little too trusting or a little lazy when it comes to Bible study don't go back to read the actual Scripture. Now, here's what the Scripture says in, in its entirety. I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This is Isaiah chapter 43. This is long after what we refer to as, and the Bible refers to as, the Exodus, where God make, made a way in the wilderness. Notice that God is doing a new thing to maybe the people who are first experiencing it, but it's not new to God. It's not new to the Word, and it's not new to the plan of God. It's only new to the people who are in captivity, who weren't part of the Exodus, who are so far removed from it that they don't even know what that's like. I um, At home, last year, I got a record player for, for my birthday. Love it. Have yet to buy an actual record because they jacked up the price on records. They're like almost $30 for a record. I can buy a, an MP3 or a digital CD for like five bucks. So I got to, you know, have to budget and all that. But I have a couple that I've borrowed from my father-in-law because he's awesome. And uh, I play those, and the kids love it. But they have no concept of what it's like to go to a record store and browse these giant relics, these big giant discs. The first time I put it on, I said, hey, to my daughter Ellie, she was three at the time, I said, hey, you want to hear a record? Look at my record player. Isn't it so cool? She's like, yeah, can we watch a video on it? No, it's, it's a record player. It doesn't do that. Okay, well, I'm going to go do this, play with this thing that does all of that, Dad. You're old. Like, okay. Okay, they have no concept. For some of you, that's all you had growing up. Records and 45s and, and the radio, and that was it. There was no playing it on demand. You couldn't go on YouTube and play a song or, or Pandora or this or that. You couldn't buy a CD online or a music online and have it downloaded to your phone in a matter of seconds. So, so there's this disconnect. Well, when, when Isaiah is giving this message inspired by the Lord, these people had no idea about the Exodus. Oh, they'd heard the stories and, and all of that. But stories only go so far. To experience God's goodness in the wilderness was brand new to them. Like, whoa, what is this? My goodness, their parents, their grandparents, and their great-grandparents, could they had not been a part of it either. But this new generation, the one that was coming up, they were going to experience something new to them, but not new 
to God and not new to God's word. God is 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 someone who does something repetitively. When you read the book of Revelation, you see the plagues come down. They almost mirror perfectly the plagues that happened to Egypt during the Exodus. It's not that God doesn't have creativity or doesn't do new things, but he does things in such a way that we can actually go back and say, oh, that's, that's of God. I've seen God do that before. I see that, that, yes, this is new to me, but it's not new to the Lord. Jesus will return, and it won't be, it'll be new to us, but there is already a group of people who saw the first coming of the Lord. Where, where something hasn't, ex- hasn't happened yet, and we can't go back to the word to, to see it actually happening before, we have prophecy. We have men and groups who have, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit of God moving in them, have declared that something is going to happen, and it may not have happened yet, but it gives us this, this insight, this warning that it will happen eventually. And if it's in the word of God, it will happen if it comes from a man, because there are people today that call themselves prophets, and they'll say, I have a prophecy for you. And they might be legit, but if it does not pan out as they say that God has told them, then it's not a prophecy. It's not real. It's emotion. It's, it's, it's maybe instinctual, but it's not the spirit of God moving in them. And we'll only know that by verifying it through the word of God. So if you get a prophecy that, you know, maybe you're lonely, maybe you feel alone, maybe you feel like everybody's abandoned you, maybe God has abandoned you, and then without telling that to anybody, someone comes to you and says, hey, I think the Lord has a word for you. He's, he's reminding me of the scripture in, in the Old Testament and in, in, in the book of Hebrews that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. And I don't know why, but God just told me to tell that to you. And you'd say, that is what the word of God says. And in that moment, you have this moment of intimacy that God actually sees you, that God knows your heart, that God can can do so much more in your loneliness than he could if you weren't lonely. So, so just because something is new doesn't mean it's of God. Okay, if it feels weird, if it looks goofy, if it's if it's just if it looks more pagan than Christian, it probably is. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's it's real. Number two, secret and mysterious. Ooh, see what God is doing. It's so secret, mysterious. This gets its its start in um, really in what we call Gnosticism, or it's known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is that uh, the basic teaching is, uh, without getting too much into detail, uh, that God is known through secret knowledge that only he reveals to a select few. That there is a secret knowledge that you will attain somehow, some way, and then you'll get to know God. And there's steps and there's levels, and as you progress, you know God more. It's Gnosticism. It's in being in the know. Okay. And oftentimes people will recite 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, which says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, uh, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And they'll see, they'll say, see? It's secret and mysterious. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. This which is happening right this second. Everything is valid. Everything is true. Once again, the scripture is taken from its context to prove or verify what they want to happen. If we go into the scriptures with that mentality, I just want to verify what I believe, rather than than learning what the scriptures say, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. Let's go back to that scripture. Let's blow it out and go uh, and read it in, in its entirety. Verse 1 says... 
Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart secret and hidden wisdom of God, secret and, secret and hidden, okay, we've got our words, uh, lost my place, doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for they, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit, or through the spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So if you just go one more line, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but God has revealed it to us. You see, if there's something that's happening that's being just pushed underneath the umbrella of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't feel right, and someone claims that it's secret or mysterious because you're, something's wrong with you, you just don't see because your eyes are covered or whatnot, God has revealed this to us through his Holy Spirit. It has been revealed. The things that we need to know about Jesus have been revealed already. The things that we do not yet know we will know in the time to come. But for now, we have all that we need to know Jesus to be reconciled and to be forgiven. Coupled with that is the idea that only a select few can know this. When you have a false teaching about the Holy Spirit, that, that there's secret wisdom that's only imparted to, to some, to a select few, you have now a, a class system where, where there is the, the spiritual and the unspiritual, you have folks that are elect, and so they look down upon those who, who maybe haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. And those poor folks, they just, they, don't, they just don't know. Those poor people. And so there's this, you know, you have upper and lower class Christians at that point. Completely unbiblical, totally a tool of the enemy, but perceived as being the Holy Spirit. And in the worst case scenario, these people down here say, well, psh, you guys, you guys, that's not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit never does anything. And so we look down upon you. You're bad. We're right. Because you, you know, God doesn't speak in tongues anymore. God doesn't prophesy anymore. He just put all those scriptures in there for us to read on a Sunday. That's it. Okay, well, that's all messed up, isn't it? But if we go back to God has revealed to us all the Spirit of God, we're all on an equal playing field. We might have different gifts, the Bible says, but we're all the same before the throne of God. There is no upper class and lower class. There is no spiritual and unspiritual. If you're a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit of God that we're, all the rest of us are filled with. Is it for a select few? No, absolutely not. And for those who believe that it is, you're in error and need to correct that. Lastly, boldness. There are some that think because they are doing something boldly, or in the name of boldness, then it's the Holy Spirit. And so they go and they kick people in the stomach, and they push people in the head, and they say crazy things at you. And they'll say, that's the Holy Spirit. And I'd say, no, it's not the Holy Spirit. For me to kick you guys in the stomach, that'd be weird, wouldn't it? Like, wouldn't you just walk, go home on a Sunday after Pastor Tony kicked you in the stomach? Wouldn't you just say, you know what, I think I'm going to another church. Like, that's the last thing I need is to be called up to an altar in front of everybody and kicked in the stomach. I mean, I'm not perfect or anything, but I don't think it warrants a kick in the stomach or the head. Come on. 
Hebrews 4 and 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This is often the, the scripture used for holy boldness. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And they take that and say you must always go boldly and do crazy things in the name of Jesus. And that's not what the scripture is saying. If you read chapter 4 in its entirety, and we could, but we're not going to. Start at verse 1, go to the end. Chapter 4 is all about how Jesus is our great high priest. For the Jews, they had a high priest. He was the man who once a year on the Day of Atonement would go and make sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. He'd be the only one to go. It's the only time he would go. He would make sacrifice for the people. The people would fast that whole day. It was the only day they were ordered to fast throughout the whole year. They would remember their sins, and the priest would make atonement through the blood of a bull for the people. Sprinkle blood on the altar and all that. Um, praise God, we're not in that time anymore. But Jesus, or excuse me, rather, the writer of Hebrews references that and says, See that high priest who goes to the Holy of Holies? Who, who only did that on a limited basis, we have Jesus, the great high priest. And, and not only does he go to the Holy of Holies for us, he is the Holy of Holies that now we get to enter into. Where for generations, Jewish men, none of them knew. Just one select man per year would go in. Now we all have the, the, the privilege to go in, and not just go in timid, not just go in scared, but to go in because we are welcomed in. Because Jesus has made a way for us. After Jesus was crucified, that curtain between the holies and, Holy of Holies and the, the, the temple, the rest of the temple, was torn in two. It was symbolic of the access that, that the everyday man had to God now because of what Jesus had done. Boldness can be exercised in the presence of God. But then when we go out into the world, maybe we go to work tomorrow, we go to Walmart. I mean, we can have boldness to preach the gospel when we need to, but I'm going to tell you a little secret. And some of you know this already. How I preach the gospel here on a Sunday morning is a little different than when we sit down and have a cup of coffee. There's a lot less yelling. There's more muffins or donuts usually. It's a lot more pleasant. It's like having a conversation. And I could come at you like this, but I guarantee you we won't have any more meetings after that because you will tire of it. There are certain privileges that I have in this moment where I can declare the, the word of God in a public setting that when we get to a private setting, it's got to be changed just a little bit. The truth isn't changed. The reality isn't changed. But, but just being crazy... And loud in the name of boldness isn't going to help you. Because you might be coming to me with something devastating. Your life is just being wrecked completely. And then I start yelling at you right there in your living room. That's not going to go over well. And so I have to deal with you in ta with tact. You know, I need to talk to you in a way that I apply common sense. Oh, they are hurt. Okay, I'm not going to hurt them more. That's common sense. I'm going, I'm going to love them and care for them. Boldness is reserved for the throne of God, but when we go out into the world, then we have to use tact. We have to use common sense. There might be a time. I'm not saying that God can't do those things in a public area. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. He has that right. I'm just saying that to excuse it through boldness by reference to Scripture is wrong. That this Scripture is referencing the boldness we have to go before the presence of God, which really that's the only boldness we need. Because if there's anything that makes you feel more unholy, it's the holy presence of God. 
when you put absolute black up against absolute white, black looks even blacker. Dark looks even darker. And so we need some boldness to go in and to not experience the shame all over again, to not experience the pain and condemnation all over again, to realize that we've been forgiven of these things, that we're not being judged by the God that stands before us. He's already judged his son on our behalf. And so simply because somebody says, well, that's boldness, that's why I slapped you in the face to give you the Holy Spirit, I would say, no, friend, that's no. And I'm going to go find someplace else to worship. So Jesus says that we can know him through the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit, in verse 14, will come to glorify me, or, or, or Jesus, will come to glorify him. The end result of a move of the Holy Spirit must be the glorification of Jesus. If it is not, then it is not of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is not glorified, if man is glorified, if a method is glorified, if a church is glorified, if a ministry is glorified, if they're the ones that are held in high esteem at the end of whatever has transpired, then I, I call that into question and say maybe that it wasn't the Holy Spirit of God. Certainly some people worship the wrong thing and can make more out of something that a ministry or church is not making it to be. But at the, end of the, at the end of the day, whatever the Spirit has done, it must glorify Jesus. That is his purpose to come to us, one of the, the many purposes, but to show us Jesus, to glorify Jesus. But we need to know what that means. What, is, what does it mean to glorify Jesus? You know, you'll go to a worship service and you hear somebody shout, glory, glory, glory. And you, you read the Bible and the glory of Jesus. And glory, what does that mean? Glory can be one of those words that we use simply as Christianese, and we think we know we're using it correctly, but it's not really being used right. And so it loses all meaning. It becomes this abstract term that, that we don't even know what it really means anymore. So what does it mean when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come to glorify me? Here's what that means. It means to reveal, to magnify, to make known. The Holy Spirit has come to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and minds to perceive the reality that is Jesus. You do not know Jesus today aside from an impartation of the Holy Spirit of God that he would come to you, shake you, open your eyes, get a hold of your attention to show you Jesus. Your salvation in my own opinion, and I can't stress that enough, your individual salvation is the greatest miracle that we will see in this church. We might see people healed of sickness, healed of, of who knows what kind of a multitude of things. But there are people who are not saved who will get healed. And they will go and they will die a death. And they will end up in hell because they don't know Jesus. And so that healing will be for naught. They, they would have some temporary relief, but it won't eternally it won't mean anything, at least not to that one person. But your salvation is is God it, it's more than a sales pitch. I'm a horrible salesman. I've shared that with you many, many times. I can't sell anything. I, I, I couldn't sell eyes to an Eskimo. Wait, does it go that way? Whatever. Dan edited that part out. I couldn't sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. Or I 
These are all very terrible jokes. We're going to start over. I'm a bad salesman, and I'm bad at jokes too. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. The point is this. If you know Jesus today, it's not the sales pitch that got you. Oh, that pastor is really convincing. I think that I know Jesus now because he makes a lot of sense. It's because the Holy Spirit is working in you. It's not just an issue of semantics. It's not like, well, we call it one thing when it's another, but it means all the same thing. No, the Holy Spirit of God, God sees you. And here's what I hope this translates into. Because what, what's the point of all this? Who cares? God shows us Jesus, big deal. But here's where I want to meet you today. And here's where I believe that the Lord wants to meet you as well. The point of this is rest. Some of you are even afraid to say that word, let alone experience rest. Rest is a glorious thing. It's more than a nap. It's not laziness. It's not being a bad steward. But rest is something that, especially in our culture, is completely not even approached. The idea that we can rest is so far back on the list of priorities that few Christians experience it more than just here and there, few and far between. What do I mean by rest? I love resting. If I, could, if I was given the privilege to write something to put into the Bible, it would be all about naps and coffee. That, that would be my subject. Okay? Consequently, I don't get to write a book of the Bible. Makes a lot of sense, right? Naps are a glorious thing. But what I'm not talking about here is just a physical nap or sleeping better. I mean, certainly those help. But here's what I mean. Some of us run ourselves so hard because when we rest, we have to face reality. You see, work and children and relationships and, and, and the economy and the government and the social issues and Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and all of these things, they captivate our attention so that we don't have to deal with the reality. When you rest, you must deal with you and Jesus. When all those things are scraped away, when all those things get put into the right place, now it's you and Jesus and that's it. And for those who have a problem resting, this is not a good, comfortable place. Because we've programmed ourselves to just keep moving, to never deal with the reality of our lives. The idea of resting is the realization that if I stop, Jesus still loves me. That if I don't, if I don't get up tomorrow morning and do all the things that I think I need to do so that Jesus will love me, if I don't do them, he will still love me. That I can rest knowing that the works that are needed to earn my salvation have already been completed in Jesus. That the things that, that I think I have to do, the, the religious things, the spiritual things, the legalistic things that I must do to maintain this life so that God isn't mad at me or that he'll keep loving me. You see, that doesn't cause any rest. That causes panic, terror, fear. I must perform, I must do, I must give, I must do all these things or God won't love me. No rest. But when the Holy Spirit shows you Jesus and you realize that these things that you are trying to accomplish won't make you any more loved in the eyes of God, 
there's rest. You cannot be any more loved by Jesus. We need to get our minds around that as much as we can. And then we need the Holy Spirit to come in and fill in all the gaps. God has already given you his only begotten son. He loved you so much. He loved you more than the sin that you committed. He loved you more than the wrath that he could justly inflict upon you for your sin. Instead of, instead of taking his right to condemn you to hell, he has decided to die on your behalf through his son on the cross so that you might be forgiven. There is nothing else you can do to make God love you more. Your response is belief and faith in that truth. And then, and only then, can you go and do the things from before. Because, you know, you still have to go to work. You still have to love your kids. You still have to come to church. You still have to be a part of the body here. But now your eyes are open to see them for what they really are. Now, if those things aren't done, God won't stop loving me. God loves me so much. I want to go do those things because I love him too. He loves me. He has changed me. And I will do these things through him. I will do these things for him. But if I don't, everything will be okay. That God somehow, crazy as this might sound, if I drop the ball, he's got others who can do the work too. And this is not an excuse for laziness or, or being lax in anything. It's to realize that we can rest. At the end of the day, we can just decompress and say, you know what, Lord, I've done my best today. But I know that you can't love me anymore than you already do. And please, tomorrow, help me to do even better. See, that changes everything. That, that erases fear. That, that erases this need to, to, to be approved by everybody else. See, people who seek approval of others and people who are in fear, there's no rest there because there's always a moment where God's going to just pull the rug out from under you, man. You're not going to see it coming, and but you just got to stay on. You got to stay ready. There's no rest. Hebrews chapter four verse eight says, "For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his." Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The writer of Hebrews says, look, if the rest that man seeks was found in another man, Joshua would have provided it. But, but they didn't experience rest. Instead, there's this rest that God only can provide. It's, it's similar to the rest that we see in in creation where God worked for seven days and then he took a whole day to just say, you know what? That's good. I don't need to work today. I have done enough. Everything is complete. You know, you don't see a God frantically trying to get all the details done. Like, oh, you know, I made a cat. Let's make, let's make three cats in one. Like, no, you don't see him trying to create more. He creates exactly what's needed and then he rests. And he rests without guilt and for you moms, that's a hard thing to rest without guilt. I know that. Men, we don't have that, especially if you're a husband. We don't have that part of our brain. Like the house can be a mess and the kids cannot be fed and the car could be on the fritz and we'll just sit in our chair and say, yeah, I'm going to rest. Like I don't, I don't feel the need to do any of these things right now. But, but like 
most moms and wives are like, we got to wash the, I can rest after we wash the dishes. I can rest after we do the laundry and after the kids have this and blah, blah, blah. And then you never rest because there's never not something to do. So there's a medium in there. Guys get up and do stuff. Women sit down sometimes. If, if, the, if the problem is fear, needing to be approved, afraid that God's going to stop loving you, you're not experiencing rest, and you're missing one of the greatest blessings of God to simply be able to sit down and say, you know what? I've done what I could. Everything's still going to be okay. One of the hardest things I had to learn here as a pastor is that if I screw up as a pastor, I mean, I'm not like robbing the church and, you know, kicking people in the head and all that. Uh, I'm just doing my best that it doesn't all hang on my performance. Like if I preach a bad sermon, oh no, God can't do anything because Pastor Tony didn't preach a good sermon. Would have loved to do something, Tony, but you know, you didn't expose you weren't expository enough, or you didn't have the right kind of illustration, or you didn't reference the scriptures enough, or you didn't have the altar call at the right time, or you didn't pick the right songs, or you didn't greet everybody, or you greeted too many people, or blah 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 blah. As if God is limited by my performance. Instead, I got to this place where through a lot of prayer and a lot of all that, where I realized, you know what, I'm going to do my best because I love Jesus. And then that small little contribution I bring, God's going to fill in the excess. If, if God wants people at his altar, he will use his Holy Spirit to show Jesus to you so that you will come up here and give your lives to them. And if you do not, it's not because I didn't prod you enough or make you feel guilty enough. It's because there's a breakdown between you and him. And I can rest. I can go home in the afternoon and say, you know what? I preached the gospel. I told them all about Jesus. I made the offer. I laid out to the sheep. I laid out the green grass and the still waters. And now they need to drink and eat. And if they don't, I rest because I know that that part's between you and the Lord. For you, some of you are so afraid to, to, to evangelize. What if, what if they say something? What if they look at me like I'm crazy? What if they stop being my friend? They probably will. But see, if you, if you do your part, simply give your testimony, share with them that you love them, serve them, then you can go home and rest and say, you know, I did what I could. The rest is all up to God. I don't think that when I have my kids help me wash the dishes, they walk away going, man, I hope I did a good enough job. You know, I didn't wash all the dishes. Dad doesn't even let me touch the knives. What are we going to do? They don't worry. They walk away saying, wow, I got to help Dad. Dad's going to do all, Dad's going to do the knives and the big pots and pans. Mom's going to make sure that they got all the stuff off the – but I just got to help Dad. It changes everything. And then they just go and play. See, that's, that's childlike faith. That's faith in a God that's bigger than us. That's faith that's biblical and sound and strong that, quite honestly, Satan can't touch. And so today I want to pray for you that you would enter into that rest. Now, I preach to you an ideal, like Best case scenario, firing on all cylinders, like you're nailing it day in and day out. And I know some of you, 
aren't even there yet. You haven't even got up. You haven't taken your first step. I know that. And no one's expecting you to leap that tall building to get there today. But you'll never get there if you don't step forward. If you don't seek, knock, ask. If you aren't pursuing. The great thing about God, I find, is that when I pursue him, he's as good as opening doors as he is as shutting doors. He'll shut doors for you when you start going the wrong direction. He'll shut those doors. Okay, good, good. I'm glad you shut that door. I didn't want to go through that door anyway. Let's go this way. Today I want you to take a step towards rest. It sounds like so anti-countercultural because our culture says, no, get up and do something. Get up, do something. Revolutionize. Rawr! You know, stop, you know, make sure everything's green and organic and carbon footprint and all this other business. You got to be an advocate. You got to step up. Hold on here, buddy. I'm going to call a revolution of rest to where you do your part and you just allow God to be God. That, that what is needed between man and God has already happened. That you have been found approved by God. That's a tough one, isn't it? I'm hoping that these words today are penetrating your heart. I, I'm praying the Holy Spirit would do that. But you are approved today by God. Not because you're sinless, because you're not. Not because you're perfect, because you're definitely not. But because God loves you and you stand in Christ's perfection. If you are in Christ, he sees his son. And you are found in that. So I want to pray for you today. Ben, I'm going to ask you to come up. We all have a role to do. Now, now you couple this with the body of Christ, and we all have a part that we need to do. And some of you are doing a great job at that, and some of you are still learning what that even means. You are a part of the body. You have a job to do, and you're also called to rest. Not because you have done everything, not because everything's complete, but because God has done everything, and everything's found complete in him. So let's stand this morning. Just a quick show of hands. When somebody asks you to rest, is that an easy thing? What's the? How many of you, it's been so long since you even just sat down and did nothing? It's just been too long. You can't even remember when that was. How many of you run constantly because you're afraid if you stop, God will stop loving you? That somehow Jesus will revoke your salvation because you are found unworthy. Let me tell you this. If he were to do that, we have done so much to be unworthy. If we could lose our salvation, we'd lose it every day. God has come and he has paid the price for your salvation and that payment has been paid. And the Holy Spirit is, is, is a down payment or a deposit into you that one day Jesus will return and take you to be with him. I want you to rest in that knowledge. I'm going to pray. Jesus, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would reveal reveal you to your people today. Your word says that the Holy Spirit, you have sent him to glorify you, to magnify you, to lift up your name. Lord, today, South Bay Chapel, Pastor Tony, the children's, you know, Christian and Justin children's teachers, they're not going to save anybody. We're not going to save anybody. 
We're not going to give rest to anybody, but you will, and you can. But Jesus, I pray for your people today. For some of us, this idea of just, of just stopping for a moment is so foreign to us. So, Father, I'm praying that, Holy Spirit, you would show us the rest that we can find in Jesus. That there is indeed this rest for your people. That the idea of working for our salvation or working for your love is unnecessary. It's needless toil. That Jesus has come and died in our place so we might be reconciled to you. That you love your son so much yet you are willing to give him up for us in the greatest act of love anybody has ever seen. I pray for each person here today, wherever they are with you, whether they've been a longtime Christian or they don't even know what that means yet, may they see Jesus. May they see how much you love. We give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.